Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we talked about some of the military events which took place here in the Tennessee Valley of North Alabama. We saw how the Army of the Ohio, encumbered by a vain struggle to repair the Memphis and Charleston Railroad as an avenue of supply, while simultaneously facing the monumental challenge of providing enough forage to feed the army, contended with the Confederate guerrilla groups harassing their efforts with ambush and sabotage with a considerable degree of success. Previously, I said how this episode will focus more upon the experiences of the war during this time, rather than upon the raw facts, shall we say, of these military events. However, I feel this begs for clarification before we begin. When I divide these two episodes along the lines of events and experiences, it must not be taken to mean that the one does not contain the other. In fact, quite the contrary, the two are inextricable. The events we encounter throughout this series are themselves made up of subjective human experiences. The reality of any single event, ranging in size from the raid on the convalescent train near Decatur on up to the Battle of Shiloh, is composed of the experiences of each person who was a witness. Like a mosaic makes a large picture, but is made of fragments. Each fragment is part of the picture, and all the fragments together constitute an image. I want you to understand that history is like a three-dimensional mosaic, built from any number of pieces consisting of human vantage points. When I describe the events and experiences, know that the one contains the other. Things happen, and people witness them. It is the witnessing that makes the event, and the event which makes the witness. And the sum total of these fragmentary experiences is what we refer to as history. This is what we are exploring. Today, as we explore the experiential side of these historical events, know that we are looking into the events themselves. And in the future, when discussing other events, know that we are in fact looking at a picture, a mosaic made of the experiences of fallible humans with emotions, desires, ambitions, fears, prejudices, misconceptions, and idiosyncrasies each one providing a different shade and hue to color the composite image we call history. And I wish to mention as well, some of the witnesses we will encounter today use language to refer to people of color and the Southern Slave Society, which at times sounds old-fashioned at best and offensive at worst. It is important for you to understand that this is the language that was used at the time, and it is necessary for an accurate understanding of the time period. But please know as well that, although I include it here unabridged for your understanding, I do not in any way condone or promote the use of insensitive, hateful, or derogatory language. Now, let's dive back into the summer of 1862. The principal players in the unfolding drama in the Tennessee River Valley were, naturally, both civilian and military. Federal military commanders struggled to keep the army fed and secured from rebel attacks along impossibly long lines, while civilians saw their daily lives and all its trappings, com commerce, religion, social life, essentially suspended by the presence of the army. The rebels, meanwhile, directed their efforts at undermining the federal incursion with far-flung, stealthy attacks on small, isolated Union detachments, while forces massed under General Braxton Bragg at Chattanooga for a larger, coordinated invasion. Local Unionists in the area became the target of retribution by rebel authorities, while also joining the federal army themselves to counteract the rebels in their own backyards. One such Unionist was Thomas Jefferson Seipert of Cypress Inn, just across the Tennessee state line in Wayne County. In the summer of 1862, as the federal campaign into the Tennessee Valley was at its zenith, right after the capture of Corinth, Mississippi, Seipert gathered a group of men to form a regiment of what occasionally were called Home Guards. 
These men came primarily from Wayne County, Hardin County, and Lawrence County in Tennessee, and from Lauderdale County in Alabama. Among these men were James Danley and his five sons. James and his son William were my fifth and fourth great-grandfathers, respectively. The high-water mark of the Federal incursion notwithstanding, it remained dangerous to be a Unionist in Tennessee, especially men like Seipert, who were vehemently outspoken, had their reputations precede them, and seldom, if ever, were out of danger. Seipert recalled an incident while leading his recruits to Nashville. Quote, on the 28th of June, in company with about 30 recruits, I started for Nashville. A man by the name of Foster, a recruiting officer, was with us. A few miles before we reached Mount Pleasant in Murray County, Colonel Foster left us and galloped on to the aforesaid place. He had been there but a few minutes when he was shot by a rebel captain named Williams. Colonel Foster was wounded in the back of the head and shoulder, though not seriously hurt. As soon as the shooting was done, Williams, with two other men, left the town, and was not seen any more. Our company was about two miles from the town when we were met by a runner who told us of this circumstance. The news was calculated to excite very uneasy feelings in all of us, for we were traveling on foot and wholly defenseless. Moreover, we believed that there must be a large number of rebels nearby, or Williams would not have acted so boldly." The first of the group, led by Seipert, reached Nashville on the morning of the 4th of July, 1862. This was organized into Company A of the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry. Seipert was elected first lieutenant. They were followed by a second group that had been cut off from the rest, which formed Company B. This group included the Danleys. They were commanded by Lieutenant Elihu McGlamory and 2nd Lieutenant Elias Thrasher, who later would earn himself an infamous reputation in North Alabama. Seipert recalled in his memoir another incident which illustrates not only the delicate and often dangerous situation Unionists faced in their daily lives, but also the personal and interpersonal nature of the conflict within their communities. While organized armies operated on a macro scale, small groups carried out the civil war on the micro scale among their own kin and neighbors. I will quote Seipert rather lengthily here. Quote, I started back through the state to Wayne County, my home. About 3 o'clock p.m. of the third day, we entered a lane. We had traveled it but a short distance when we came in sight of a house, before which we saw five or six men on horseback with double-barreled shotguns lying across their laps. Their distance from us was about 250 yards. We all felt certain that the party consisted of Williams, the man who had shot Colonel Foster a few days before, and some of his companions. We had two wagons with us, and immediately halted for consultation. It was the unanimous opinion of my friends that if these men got me into their power, they would kill me, and that they themselves, being in my company, would be very roughly handled. For the willing rebels in Tennessee had learned to hate me from the very beginning of the secession movement, because I had opposed their policy in every honorable way that I could. I had tried on many occasions to expose their designs, and at a time, too, when they were exceedingly solicitous that their real intentions should not be known to the honest masses. Hence, these leaders wanted my life. The men had seen us when we halted, and were sitting on their horses, looking at us while we were considering what it was best to do. It would not have done for me to start away from the others, for they saw us, and would have certainly pursued and caught me had I left my party. For it was a level country, with no place in sight where I might conceal myself. Finally, it was agreed I should get in one of the wagons, and ride carelessly by, keeping my face turned from them, and that after passing out of their sight, I should leave the road and take to the woods." We started on, and I succeeded in passing them without being recognized. After going on about 100 yards, we came to where the road made a sudden turn and carried us out of sight of Williams and his men. I immediately jumped from the wagon, telling Mr. Reisner, Mr. Moser, and John Brewer to follow me. We abandoned the road, leaving A.J. Brewer and A.P. Phillips with the wagons. They were both over the age to be conscripted, and though good Union men had always been very quiet. 
My companions and self had not traveled more than thirty rods from the wagons before Williams and his men came up to the wagons in great haste and inquired of Mr. Brewer and Phillips where the other men were. They were told that the men about whom they inquired overtook the wagons a mile or two back, that they did not know anything about them, that they had never seen them before that day, and that as soon as they were out of sight of the house back, they left the road. Williams asked them in an angry manner which way they went. Our friends pointed to exactly the opposite direction to that we had gone, and Williams, after threatening our friends with the severest punishment in case of failure to find us, started off with his companions at full gallop in the direction pointed out. During all this time, we, the runaways, were doing some of our handsome performances in the art of getting over ground. The infuriated Rebs were gone about half an hour when they again overtook the wagons, making heavy threats against our two friends as to what they would do with them if they did not immediately tell where we were. Again, they declared they knew nothing about us, only we had overtaken them a few miles back and had left the road in the direction they had indicated. These rebel scamps then robbed the wagons and men of such things as they fancied and left, going back the way they came. My comrades and I continued to travel through the woods till after dark. About eleven o'clock at night we came to an old road, and soon after it commenced raining. We were very tired, having walked and run about twenty-five miles since we left the wagons, only stopping for a few minutes now and then to breathe and rest, and the weather was exceedingly warm. After traveling till a late hour, we came to a house which as it was built as near nowhere as possible, seemed admirably adapted to our present necessities. There seemed a fitness, a suitability, between it and our condition that was positively charming, and we were not long in testing the correctness of our instruction. They did not deceive us, for it embraced within its walls a union family, poor and unassuming, but kindly accommodating. We were strangers, and they took us in. Early the next morning, we ate a snack and started, traveling through the woods or along old abandoned roads and by-paths. At last, by a very roundabout way, we intersected the road we had left the day previous, but some two or three miles in the rear of our friends. We were not long, however, in overtaking them, and then we received information in regard to the treatment. End quote. Elsewhere in the region at this time, the presence of the Federal Army was a boon to Unionists who wanted to organize into military groups to resist the rebel guerrilla bands that were already operating, as we've seen in the Tennessee Valley. I will quote here from the report of Colonel Abel Strait, 51st Indiana, dated July 16, 1862, who will later earn an ignominious reputation for his failed raid in 1863 that ended with his capture by Nathan Bedford Forrest, along with almost 1,500 of his command. The report is found in Volume 16, Part 1 of the Official Records, starting on page 785. To quote Colonel Strait, Quote, while in command at Decatur, there were several small parties of loyal Alabamians who came into our lines begging me to give them protection and a chance to defend the flag of our country. The tale of suffering and misery, as told by each as they arrived, was in itself a lamentable history of the deplorable condition of the Union people of the South. Notwithstanding the oft-repeated assertion that there was a strong Union sentiment in portions of the cotton states, I had long since given up all hopes of finding the people entertaining it. Hence, I was at first incredulous as to what they said, and even suspicious that they were spies belonging to the enemy. But as their numbers increased, each corroborating the story of the other, I at last became convinced that the matter was worthy of notice." About this time, the tenth instant, I was informed by a courier that there was a party of about forty men, some five or six miles toward the mountain, trying to come to us, and about the same number of the enemy's cavalry were between them and Decatur trying to intercept and capture them. End quote. Despite his skepticism of the intentions of the locals, eventually that other band arrived behind Federal lines. 
Quote, Such were the manifestations of joy and gladness exhibited by them that all doubts were fully expelled from my mind, whereupon I resolved to go to the assistance of those who were left behind, providing I could get permission to do so. End quote. After a series of delays, including, quote, a storm that was passing over the telegraph lines at the time, end quote, Strait secured permission from his superiors and set out in the direction of a place called Davis's Gap. In addition to three companies of infantry, he took a cavalry detachment to act in a reconnaissance capacity and local guides to lead them to the Union settlement. He describes the careful and deliberate manner in which they proceeded. Quote, the cavalry were thrown out in the advance, a suitable distance to give notice of the approach of the enemy, and a strong advance and rearguard was at all times kept in readiness for immediate action. When we had proceeded some twelve miles on our way, being unable to hear anything of the enemy, I ordered the captain commanding the cavalry to proceed with his command in advance with the three of the guides and escort them as far towards Davis's Gap as he should deem safe, so as to allow the guides to give the information to the Union people that we were coming. I gave him the most positive instructions to make diligent inquiry relative to the enemy and to go no farther than he could with perfect safety. End quote. Despite these orders, they were destined to meet with dramatic misadventure. He continues, quote, under these instructions, he proceeded somewhat faster than the infantry could march. Consequently, he was probably not more than five or six miles ahead of my regiment. But it being very hot in the middle of the day, we halted to rest, expecting the cavalry to rejoin us as ordered. In direct disobedience of my orders, the cavalry spent about an hour's time in scouting about the country after they had escorted the guides to within three miles of the mountains, after which they stopped at a Mr. Mentor's house and ordered dinner. There they spent about three hours more. The captain was warned when he first arrived in the neighborhood that forty of the enemy's cavalry were within six miles of him. Yet, with these facts before him, as I have above shown, he spent nearly four hours in the neighborhood and at Mr. Mentor's house, a sufficient time to have returned to Decatur, if necessary, much less rejoined me. At about 5.30 o'clock, he was attacked by upward of 40 of the enemy's cavalry and guerrillas. Here again, his conduct seems to have been very injudicious, for although there were several log buildings that he could have held against any force of the enemy could bring to bear against him, yet, instead of occupying them, after exchanging a few shots, in which one of his men was wounded and two of the enemy killed and two wounded, he ordered a retreat across the field, which seems to have been accomplished very precipitately, especially when taking into consideration the fact that the enemy did not pursue him but a few rods, and that on foot too. Four of his men got lost from the balance. He proceeded in a westerly, circuitous route to Decatur, where he arrived the evening of the same day with twelve of his men. In the meantime, I had arrived to within two miles of the place where he was attacked before the enemy had left, and think I would have been in time to have done them justice had I not halted to chastise some guerrillas who had the impudence to fire into my rear guard. But as it was, we arrived just in time to see the chivalry put spurs to their horses and leave hurriedly to the eastward, thus showing conclusively that the enemy did not follow our cavalry. We bivouacked that night twenty-three miles from Decatur, and within one mile of where the skirmish took place. The next day was spent in ascertaining what we could relative to the extent of the damage done to the cavalry, and in notifying the people in the mountains that they could now have a chance to join the Union army. The news of the defeat of our cavalry spread over the country like a fire on a prairie, causing great consternation among the Union people and boldness on the part of the guerrillas. The guides became frightened, and it was very difficult to induce them to leave my command. However, after laboring under all these difficulties, we succeeded in bringing back with us 150 volunteers. Several small parties that started to join us failed to get there in time. One party, numbering 34 men, were within 20 miles of us at daylight the morning we left, and although a messenger arrived giving me that information when we had marched but a short distance on our return, yet I was ordered to return within four days' time and could wait no longer. End quote. The location of this battle, by the way, is to this day known as Battleground.
After describing their return to Decatur, Colonel Strait concludes his report with a lengthy and emotive summary of the conditions facing Union people in the mountainous region south of the Tennessee River. Quote, I wish to say a word relative to the condition of these people. They are mostly poor, though many of them are, or rather were, in comfortable circumstances. They outnumber nearly three to one the secessionists in portions of Morgan, Blunt, Winston, Marion, Walker, Fayette, and Jefferson counties. But, situated as they are, surrounded by a most relentless foe, mostly unarmed and destitute of ammunition, they are persecuted in every conceivable way, yet up to this time most of them have kept out of the way sufficiently to avoid being dragged off by the gangs that infest the country for the purpose of plunder and enforcing the provisions of the Rebel Conscription Act. Their horses and cattle are driven off in vast numbers. Every public road is patrolled by guerrilla bands, and the Union men have been compelled to seek protection in the fastness of the mountainous wilderness. They cannot hold out much longer. This state of things has so disturbed them that but very little attention has been paid to farming. Consequently, many of them are now destitute of food of their own and are living off their more fortunate neighbors. Such examples of patriotism as these people have set are worthy of being followed. One old lady, Mrs. Anna Campbell, volunteered to ride 35 miles and return, making 70 miles, with about 30 recruits within 36 hours. When it is taken into consideration that these people were all hid away to avoid being taken by the rebels, and that the country is but sparsely settled, this case is without a parallel in American history. There are many cases of a similar nature that came under my observation, but I do not desire to weary your patience with them. Suffice it to say that I have never witnessed such an outpouring of devoted and determined patriotism among any other people. I am now of the opinion that if there could be a sufficient force in that portion of the country to protect these people, there could be at least two full regiments raised of as good and true men as ever defended the American flag. So confident am I that my views are correct, that if the commanding general will grant me permission to do so, I will take my regiment, the boys all want to go, and two weeks' rations of bread, salt, sugar, and coffee, meat we can get there, and five hundred extra stand of arms with a sufficient supply of ammunition, and locate at least thirty miles south of Decatur, where I will rally around me a sufficient number of the brave mountaineers to protect the country effectually against anything except the regular rebel army, which, by the way, would find it a difficult country to operate in. Never did people stand in greater need of protection. They have battled manfully against the most unscrupulous foe that civilized warfare has ever witnessed. They have been shut out from all communication with anybody but their enemies for a year and a half, and yet they stand firm and true. If such merit is not to be rewarded, if such citizens are not to receive protection, then is their case a deplorable one indeed. End quote. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine General Buell's surprising policy regarding enslaved people in North Alabama, and we'll hear from a rebel-supporting teenager who kept a diary of the shocking and dramatic events she witnessed here in Florence during the hot and dusty summer of 1862. Please stay with us. White Unionists were not the only demographic eager to seek refuge within the federal lines. The official reports and correspondence of the Union Army show how, from the moment they set foot on the soil of the Tennessee Valley, enslaved black people, at incalculable personal risk, took the opportunity to escape bondage within the Union camps. General Buell's policy, however, was not entirely welcoming of their plight. General J.B. Steedman testified to the Buell Commission, quote, I think 19 out of 20 of the slaves of the disloyal states are friendly to the Union cause. 
what would have been the effect in aiding us to procure supplies from the country if a different policy had been pursued toward them than that enforced by the commanding officers of our army, I am unable to say. It would be a mere matter of opinion. I will state, however, in this connection, that most of the information we received while the army was in Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee came from the Negroes. They were always reliable on our side. End quote. He walks back from this statement somewhat, and expresses what seems to have been a common skeptical sentiment among the white officer corps regarding local black people. Quote, when I say reliable, I do not mean to say that they were always truthful. Very frequently, their anxiety to get with the army induced them to misrepresent the position of their masters and owners. The information was generally correct as to the locality and movements of the enemy, though I never considered it reliable as to the political status of their masters. They would invariably say their masters were rebels of the strongest kind. I think, however, they might have been made more useful to the Union Army than they have been." End quote. When asked, quote, what has been the policy of Major General Buell in this respect, end quote, he responded, quote, his policy has been generally to exclude them from the camp and in favor of returning them to their owners, end quote. He then says he believes this emboldened secessionists in the occupied areas, evincing a weakness on the part of the federal authorities. He is asked to provide specific examples of such instances when black people escaping bondage were returned to their so-called masters, and describes the following. Quote, I received orders while a colonel commanding a regiment to permit persons whom I was satisfied were disloyal to search my camp for slaves. I received an order from General Fry, Ayuka, to permit citizens who were named in the order to search my camp for runaway Negroes. It was about the 25th of June. I conversed with the citizen who bore me the order and to whom the authority was given to search my camp, and I was satisfied they were disloyal. I took the order and wrote upon the back of it that I declined to permit any citizen of a disloyal state to search my camp for slaves unless the officer in command of the department positively ordered the search and signed it officially. Then I handed it back to the citizen. At Pulaski, in Tennessee, somewhere about the first week of August, I received a verbal order from General Fry himself to deliver up two Negroes from my camp to a citizen of that town, which I declined to do. I did not know at the time, however, that the Negroes were in my camp. The general rode up to my camp and told me he was informed there were two Negroes belonging to a citizen whose wife he said he knew. She was a Rhodes. I replied to the general that I did not care what her name was, and that I would not permit a she-rebel to enter my camp to get slaves any quicker than I would a he-one, and he said he would take the responsibility of returning the negroes. I then informed him what I understood to be the law, and that I should stand on it, and advised him not to trouble himself any further about negroes, but to leave the question to the colonels of regiments and the claimants. Those are the only two instances I know of. End quote. His testimony shows that, generally, Buell's policy was that only rebellious Southerners were not allowed to keep the people they enslaved. However, if an enslaved person escaped to federal lines and provided information, it was the policy that such a person would be protected and not returned to a master who may enact retribution. General William Smith reported on August 6th, quote, my instructions from General Buell strictly forbade my giving up slaves who had brought in intelligence and thus rendered themselves liable to punishment from their masters, and in no case, to my knowledge, were they so given up. End quote. In addition to those who voluntarily entered the federal lines, officially the command within the Army of the Ohio directed that enslaved black people be impressed to labor in the many endeavors weighing the army down, such as especially repairing bridges and building defensive works at critical points along the railroad. General Russo further clarified that position. Quote, I can say this much of General Buell's policy, that he desired to have as little to do with the slaves as might be. 
When they were needed as teamsters or to work on the fortifications, I understood it to be his wish to use them freely as teamsters when belonging to secessionists, and to take them all alike when they were needed on the fortifications. I recollect he objected to having slaves in camp, on the ground that, whatever might be the political principles of the owners, their presence there tended to the demoralization of the army, that they consumed the supplies intended for the army, or else were driven to steal and maraud to get something to eat. I believe his policy was to turn all slaves whom you might call surplus out of camp, up to the time that the law was changed on the subject. I believe he was opposed, as distinctly as I was, to aiding in any possible way a secessionist in obtaining possession of his slaves, but desired that loyal men should have their negroes. With General Buell's concurrence, I used several hundred negroes at Huntsville and Nashville in erecting fortifications, and he knew that I had a great number of able-bodied negroes as teamsters in my command, and I think I informed him several times, as he could see himself. He objected to Negroes going with the army in large numbers, and waiting on the soldiers, as was practiced in the troops of General Mitchell and perhaps in others." He was then asked if he knows of specific instances, particularly in North Alabama, where the local black population gave information to the army, and he says he knows of several such instances. But when asked if he thought the information generally of much value, he replied, quote, generally not of the least." End quote. His dismissive attitude is quite illustrative of the racist sentiment black people faced from within the army corps, and foreshadows the difficulties they will have gaining acceptance within the ranks when the army starts accepting and arming black recruits later in the year 1863, after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Nevertheless, the testimony from the Buell Commission reveals how, as the Army of the Ohio feverishly endeavored to repair the railroad in their struggle to adequately supply the army, the labor of the local black population was indispensable. Lieutenant Colonel Francis Dara explained, quote, Every effort was concentrated to complete the repairs on the Decatur and Nashville Road first, all the force that could be put upon the different points in the break working day and night. Not only were the Michigan mechanics and engineers employed on this work, but every Negro that could be secured in the region through which the railroad passed was pressed into the service to expedite the work. End quote. Commanders such as Buell and Russo may have been quick to dismiss their contributions, but it is clear from the testimony that black people in North Alabama made great sacrifices to bolster the cause of the Union. Buell, for his part, seems to have treated slaveholders surprisingly delicately. On August 8th, he wrote to Colonel Harker at Stevenson, quote, in taking slaves to work on the entrenchments, try, if possible, to leave enough with the owner to do the ordinary and indispensable work about an establishment. Send Mr. Harris's boy, Larkin, back to him for that purpose. End quote. And to that end, he further directed Colonel Harker two days later, quote, Send back Mrs. Cole's slaves, Zack and John, who are employed on public work, to take care of the place, there being no hands left for the purpose. End quote. At this stage in the war, while the presence of the Federal Army did offer opportunities to seize one's freedom, for the enslaved black population it was not yet by any means a guarantee. As we saw last time, the needs of supplying the vast Army of the Ohio quickly overwhelmed the crippled existing transportation networks. The deficits quite often fell upon the shoulders of local people to make up for it. General Buell's army actually seems to have relied less, as a matter of policy, upon subsistence taken from the local population than did other commands in the Tennessee Valley later in the war. At this stage in the conflict, the policy of the army as an occupying force was what is described as consolation. Essentially, to summarize very briefly, the army attempted to be as minimally disruptive as possible to the local population, making a distinction between rebel sympathizers and those who openly took up arms against the United States. This policy was controversial and sometimes not carried out to the letter. We will discuss this more next time when we explore the depredations committed in the city of Athens, Alabama. 
The movement of the Army of the Ohio through North Alabama in the summer of 1862 produces the first claims against the government presented by petitioners to the SCC a decade later. One of these petitioners, Samuel Stafford, operated a grocery store in downtown Florence. In the first week of September, Colonel R.F. Smith of the 16th Illinois seized from Mr. Stafford's store 170 gallons of peach brandy, 80 gallons of whiskey, 25 gallons of French brandy, 2 gallons and 6 bottles Holland gin, 30 bottles old peach brandy, 13 barrels and kegs, and 1 bottle of blackberry cordial. Mr. Stafford recalled, quote, I heard the officer read the order, and I took and read it myself, the purport of which was for him to take the spirits that I had for the use of the army hospital purposes. They took nothing else, as the order only called for spirits. End quote. The officer told Mr. Stafford that he could come to the camp just south of town, and they would furnish him with a receipt. When Mr. Stafford went to the camp, he was told that the officer who could issue a receipt was on the other side of the Tennessee River, but was expected to cross at any time. Stafford says, quote, I waited until late, and, he not coming, I was told to come back the next morning. But the army moved off very early the next morning. I was standing on the corner of the street the next morning and saw the same wagons go by with the whiskey and brandy they had got from me the day before, end quote. The army did not require only spirits for medical purposes. Another claimant, Edmund Poole, who was enslaved at the beginning of the war, testified that soldiers from Buell's command took a wagon and horse from him in order to haul six soldiers. A quartermaster from Buell's army receded for the wagon and horse they took, and told Mr. Poole to travel to Buell's headquarters, quote, then about nine miles above Florence. But, as I was a colored man, I was afraid to go, being fearful that the rebels would kill me, end quote. The policy of the army was to give receipts for officially requisitioned property, but as we saw in the previous two examples, it was often beholden upon the owner to go out of his or her way to get it, and those attempts were not always practicable or successful. On August 8th, General Halleck wrote to Buell, expressing the official policy, quote, if you want supplies of any kind which the country affords, take them on forced requisitions, causing receipts in all cases to be given, the payment or non-payment to be determined on hereafter. End quote. And Buell's chief of staff, Colonel James Fry, wrote to General Russo, further clarifying the policy. Quote, Pay a fair price for such articles as are authorized for the army and were necessary for its use at the time and which were taken by competent authority. Among these may be enumerated forage, fuel, subsistence stores, and horses. Property, however, taken not in the way of regular army supplies, but to meet a public emergency, should not be paid for, though it may have been taken by proper authority, as, for example, material for building a bridge would not be paid for when used for that purpose, but if taken when necessary as fuel and so consumed, it should be paid for." End quote. Critically, he also specifies, quote, Payment should not be made for property taken without authority, and not clearly shown to have been necessary to the public interest at the time, in accordance with the principles above. That is, no payment can be made for property plundered or damaged through misbehavior, etc., or want of discipline on the part of our troops. End quote. In the 1870s, a person with a claim to the SCC had to prove his or her property was lawfully and officially taken. The government would not pay for property taken out of so-called want of discipline. It is interesting that his instructions specify material used to construct a bridge. Captain of Engineers James St. Clair Morton testified that on June 11th, quote, being ordered by General Buell to provide for the crossing of his army over the Tennessee River, I went to Pittsburgh Landing and Eastport, where I procured two suitable barges and a steamboat, of which, together with the floors, rafters, and joists of storehouses in Florence, I made a steam ferry bridge at the last-named place." End quote. The army literally commandeered the very material from the buildings to build a bridge across the Tennessee River at Florence. 
There were, of course, such instances where property was taken or destroyed as retribution. Besides the notable example of what happened in Athens, which we will discuss next time, Colonel E. M. McCook recalled an incident near Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He testified to the Buell Commission that, owing to the corn crops still being green, it was of little use as forage for the army. He says it was even too green to easily burn. This prompted further inquiry from the commissioners. McCook explained, quote, One of the soldiers had been shot in a field. He had unbuttoned his pantaloons and sat down to relieve himself when he was shot out of a house. I found his body lying there. I tried to burn the fields. Every person ran away from there. There were none but women left, no men. End quote. The commission then asked McCook, quote, in stating that on one occasion you endeavored to burn the cornfield, do you or do you not wish it understood that you intended that as a punishment for the murder which you supposed had been committed upon the soldier by the owners of the property, or do you mean that you were in the habit of doing it? End quote. McCook responded, quote, I never burnt a blade of corn in my life that I am aware of. I attempted to burn this cornfield because I was sure the man had been shot at out of that house, and had it not been for the women and children, I should have burned the house. I should have done it as a just punishment, for the Negroes about the house told me that their master had shot the man. End quote. General Russo explained the nature of this hostility between the Union Army and the population in North Alabama. Quote, between some of the regiments of General Mitchell's army and the people, there was a very bitter feeling existing, and, as I before said, it was partly induced by the shooting of the soldiers by bushwhackers, and they in turn handled the people more roughly. I heard many well-authenticated incidents, well calculated to excite a feeling among the inhabitants. I believe that many of the soldiers had been very much in the habit of taking everything they wanted, and many things they did not want, such as men and women's and children's clothing, etc. I was informed by a loyal man there, and there were not many of them in my judgment, that the course previously pursued had done great injury to the cause of the government, and I have no doubt it was true. The people did not complain so much on account of what was taken from them as they did of the manner and the persons who did it. They seemed to give very freely to the officials when it was demanded, whatever the government required. The complaint was soldiers and officers entered private residences and took out of them whatever they wanted, silver plate, money, and anything else, and the manner of doing it, and of the wanton destruction of the furniture of the houses." End quote. As we've already seen, the presence of the Union Army was, even at its most docile, a disruptive and heavy weight upon the local population. One unique witness to the occupation that summer was 13-year-old Sally Independence Foster. Her father was a wealthy planter whose mansion, Courtview, now known as Rogers Hall, still stands today, occupying a prominent location peering down Court Street on the campus of the University of North Alabama. Miss Foster kept a diary starting that summer, keeping record of the very personal impacts in her social circle resulting from the occupation. On July 18th, she described a remarkable occasion where a girl escaped bondage as a slave. Quote, Sister Lou's girl Lizzie was going to dress up in men's clothes and go with the Yanks last night, but we caught her and was going to send her to the farm, but she has run away. End quote. There are many such instances that summer, as she later details. I will here be reading a lengthy selection from her diary, starting on Saturday, August 16th. Quote, Brother Watt and free Negro Jim Goyney went to Cortland Monday and set Jim back today. He says that seven of our Negroes the Yanks have got, and they pressed two big, Cornelian, William, Edward, Little Bill, Alfred, Sot, Ritt, and Hartley went with them. Tuesday, August 19th, 1862. To our surprise, two Yankee officers came to our window. Instead of knocking, walked in and asked for Pa and how long he had been gone and when he was coming back. They said they wanted to make some inquiries of him. 
I thought they want to take him prisoner. I asked them if they were. They said they hoped not, though I think they are going to take him. Wednesday, August 20th. It has been a very sad day. The Yanks took Uncle Frank after they left here, but let him stay at home that night, and they put some guards around the house, and took him off soon as this morning. And before we had completed our toilet, seven Yankees came and guarded the house, asking for Pa, but he had not returned home, so they went on and took Uncle Frank and Mr. Tom Weekly to Tuscumbia, and told them that if they did not prevent our cavalry from out of town, or they would arrest all the men and send a company over here, and we will know the consequences, then let him go. Friday, August 22nd. It has been a sadder day today than yesterday. The Yankees came and took Pa last night to Tuscumbia, and Mr. Jack and Sap Rice, Charlie Stewart, and Hooks. They surrounded the house before we knew there were any Yankees in town. They did not wake me up. They did not want to trouble me, so I did not see Pa before he went. They promised to bring him back today, but they have not released any of them yet. They have them in an old tavern. Saturday, August 23rd. The Yanks went down to Mr. Key's and took all of his Negro men and started to take his Negro women and children, but said they were too troublesome that they would send back again. They made all of them dress up in their Sundays. They said they were going to take Mr. Simpson's and Pa's place today, but I hope they will not. They broke Mr. Key's carriage up. They have taken Mrs. Billy O'Neill, the sick soldiers that was at Aunt Agnes. They also took Mrs. McAlexander, Julia's cousin, from Legion Spring. Sunday, August 24th. A great number of Yankees came in today and are going to camp here tonight. We did not have any church and Sunday school because of the Yankees. They took Soddy and Willie Irvine, but paroled them. Monday, August 25th. We had a very troublesome night. The Yanks were about, and about the yard all night. Uncle Monroe and Summerfield, both of our black men, have gone. They took nearly all of our chickens and geese. Lieutenant West and Yanch took dinner with us, and it is said that Yanch is one of them that stayed here last night and stole nearly all of the chickens, etc. I expect we will have a guard tonight. Wednesday, August 27th. Brother Watt came from Cortland, and he says that six women have gone and several men. I think they forced them. It is said that we have beaten Buell. Another one of our men from the reserve named Stroder has gone with the Yanks. Thursday, August 28th. The Yanks went to the farm and took Jack's horses and another horse and two Negro men. They are crossing over here today. Friday, August 29th. It has been a very hot day. There are a great many Yanks in town. Pa said they took up Mistress Martin and Dean last night and released them today under the conditions that they would hoist a Union flag over their factory. Saturday, August 30th. It has been as hot as yesterday. The Yanks have been in and out of the yard nearly all day. Brother Watt went to Cortland and Wash went to the plantation. Two of our Negro men came back from the Yanks that they forced. I heard today that the Yanks took all Mrs. O'Neill's black people from Legions, and have also taken Logan and John Kennedy, but I heard afterwards that they were released. Sunday, August 31st. There are so many Yanks in town we did not have any church. Jack came in from the farm today. The Yanks have taken Mr. Andrew's team today. Mrs. O'Neill's black girl's father went to Tuscumbia and got her. Her name is Margaret. End quote. Miss Foster's diary shows how the presence of the Federal Army upended many facets of her world and that of the established Southern Planter Society, and for the people they enslaved. Her diary begins with a famous and remarkable incident, which has been told and retold in local lore about life here during the Civil War. Quote, Sunday morning, July 27, 1862. It has been a really distressing day. The Yanks went into the Presbyterian Church and took Dr. Mitchell prisoner while he was praying and took him over the river, sent word to his wife that she must come to see him or she would not see him again. They would not let him hoist up his umbrella. They said he could stand the sun as well as they could. Poor man, he used to be the president of our school. He said school would open again the 1st of September but I don't think it will, as we have no president now. 
I read some today. None of us went to church or Sunday school. There are so many Yanks in town. They came here the other night and ordered us to put our light out. Two came today, and we all sat on the porch and talked, but we did not invite them in. End quote. This same incident was printed in the Chicago Tribune on the 12th of August under the headline, Secesh Divine Comes to Grief. Quote, from the Nashville Union, August 8th. On Sunday, the 26th instant, a large number of Union officers attended the Old School Presbyterian Church of the Reverend Dr. William H. Mitchell at Florence, Alabama. So many of them were present that they constituted a majority of the congregation. After the usual opening hymn, the minister asked the congregation to unite in prayer, when, to their utter astonishment, the reverend traitor prayed for Jeff Davis, for the success of the Confederate arms, and for the attainment of the independence of the Confederate people. The Union men are greatly indignant at this gross insult, but remained standing until the prayer was concluded when they all left the church. After he had commenced his sermon, Colonel Harlan returned to the church, walked up to the pulpit, arrested the preacher, and delivered him, in compliance with the orders of General Thomas, to a detachment of cavalry, which immediately conveyed him as prisoner to Discumbia. End quote. The policy of the Union Army may well have been conciliatory, but openly praying for the success of the rebellion was apparently crossing a line, even for a man of the cloth in a house of worship. Nor were such acts of retribution limited to the part of the federal authorities. Sally Foster noted on the 10th of September, quote, to our great joy, the Confederates came in town today. It is a party of Captain Roddy's brigade. They have gone out in the country to arrest some Union men. End quote. The attitude of nonchalance betrays her youth, but also illustrates how very commonplace such back-and-forth acts of retribution and repression had become by this point. Roddy especially seems to have been a proactive agent in cracking down on unionism in North Alabama. We will encounter much more of that in the future, and it is not the last time we will hear his name. Join me next time as we examine the sacking of the city of Athens, Alabama, under the command of a Russian-born general, Ivan Turchin, and the failure of the policy of consolation. By the way, I gathered an enormous amount of research for this episode, far more than I could present in an hour-long episode. If you're interested, comment or message me. Let me know what you found interesting, or if you have questions, or want to know more about anything at all. And thank you so much for joining me.